welcome to episode 18 of Literary Disco, the Object Lessons episode. In today's episode, we will do a bookshelf revisit, in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss, and then we will talk about Object Lessons. The Paris Review presents The Art of the Short Story, a new collection of short stories with a unique twist on its editorial selection. I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me again are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hi. Good morning. We're recording this in the morning, ladies and gentlemen. Usually we record late, late at night, so we're all still in our jammies. And it's interesting because, Julia, I didn't think of you as a feetsy pajama type person. Um, but yeah. they, look, they look adorable. They do. I, it wouldn't work without the flap in the back. Well, you know what? That uh, I saw flap in the back of Coachella. Great show. <laughs> Great show. So good. They open for uh, Horses and Bayonets. So good. And that's Todd's uh, bookshelf revisit. <laughs> Flap in the back. <laughs> well, let's just cut him off there. That was enough. Yeah, that's probably enough, yeah. So, uh, Ryder, what do you have to, uh, to revisit this week? My revisit is very simple. I would just like to read a poem. Um. No, this is a really good poem, and I'm sure you guys know it. Um, it's something I... Somebody gave me this great book. Uh, it's Billy Collins, who you guys know, right? Oh, yes. Poet. I like Billy Collins. Awesome, very accessible, great poet. And a graduate of uh, UC Riverside, where I, really? where I teach. Yes. So when I was a teenager, someone gave me this collection, Picnic Lightning, his collection of poems. And there's this uh, one that I've always loved. It's called Marginalia. Do you guys know this poem? Yes. No. It's a poem all about the things that people write on the margins of their books. So I was thinking about this because I always... Uh, I always write in my books, and the last um, book that we read, Life of Pi, I borrowed from my girlfriend, and like the first question she asked when we were done reading it was, did you write all in my book? Uh, <laughs> and it, it, it should be and noted, by the way. she becomes like a football player. Writer's yeah, uh, <laughs> girlfriend is six foot nine, which is 385 pounds, <laughs> and has had a lobotomy. <laughs> Marginalia. Sometimes the notes are ferocious, skirmishes against the author, raging along the borders of every page in tiny black script. If I could just get my hands on you, Kierkegaard, or Connor Cruz O'Brien, they seem to say, I would bolt the door and beat some logic into your head. Other comments are more offhand, dismissive, nonsense, please, ha, that kind of thing. I remember once looking up for my reading, my thumb as a bookmark, trying to imagine what the person must look like who wrote, don't be a ninny, alongside a paragraph in The Life of Emily Dickinson. <laughs> Students are more modest, needing to leave only their splayed footprints along the shore of the page. One scrawls, metaphor, next to a stanza of Eliot's. Another notes the presence of irony, 50 times outside the paragraphs of A Modest Proposal. <laughs> or they are fans who cheer from the empty bleachers, hands cupped around their mouths. Absolutely, they shout. To Duns Scotus and James Baldwin, yes, bullseye, my man, check marks, asterisks, and exclamation points rain down along the sidelines. And if you have managed to graduate from college without ever having written man versus nature in a margin, perhaps now is the time to take one step forward. We have all seized the white perimeter as our own and reached for a pen, if only to show we did not just laze in an armchair, turning pages. We pressed a thought into the wayside, planted an impression along the verge. Even Irish monks in their cold scriptoria jotted along the borders of the Gospels, brief asides about the pains of copying, a bird singing near their window, or the sunlight that illuminated their page, anonymous men catching a ride into the future on a vessel more lasting than themselves. And you have not read Joshua Reynolds, they say, until you have read him and wreathed with Blake's furious scribbling. 
Yet the one I think of most often, the one that dangles from me like a locket, was written in the copy of Catcher in the Rye I borrowed from the local library one slow, hot summer. I was just beginning high school then, reading books on a Davenport in my parents' living room, and I cannot tell you how vastly my loneliness was deepened, how poignant and amplified the world before me seemed, when I found on one page a few greasy-looking smears, and next to them, written in soft pencil by a beautiful girl, I could tell, whom I would never meet, Pardon the egg salad stains, but I'm in love. <laughs> uh, that's a great poem. I love that poem so much. Billy Collins, if no one, if you guys haven't read Billy Collins, well, I know you two have, but if our listeners haven't read Billy Collins, I highly recommend running out and buying this book, Picnic Lightning, or any book that he has. He's just, he's not only a great, uh, a great poet, but he's also a great teacher of poetry. He has a collection of poems that he selected uh, that he uh, discusses different techniques of poetry, and he's just great. Um, and also, I love the title Picnic Lightning, which I didn't realize was a reference to Lolita. Um, in Lolita, uh, the narrator, what is his name? Humper Humperdink? Humber. Um, Humbert. Humbert. Yes. Humper Humbert. Humperdink. That's <laughs> his name. HH, whatever. So, what he's talking about what happened to his mother and how his mom died, he says, My mom died in a freak accident. And then in parentheses, it just says, Picnic, comma, lightning. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. I love that Billy Collins selected that as the title of his collection. And it's something that I didn't get because I hadn't read Lolita when I first read this collection. So, it was when I was finally reading Lolita, you know five, ten years ago or whatever, and I just saw that those two words. It was like one of those moments of, oh, this is where that comes from. Isn't that the best feeling? I remember reading, or, I mean, I've read or seen Macbeth like at least five or six times for various reasons, but I remember seeing it one of the first times after I had really read so much that the references that have come from Macbeth, it was like so exciting right. to hear, you know, yeah. of sound and fury. I was like, oh, the sound and the fury. Oh, yeah. There's so many lines in Macbeth specifically that have led to other things. May may I make a a sad admission? Sometimes, not sometimes, long ago, for many years, I thought Billy Collins the poet and Billy Collins the horrible British comic (gasps) were the same guy. Oh, Oh, that would be amazing! So when people talk about the poet Billy Collins, I always thought the really not funny <laughs> British comic. Much like I think um, Wallace Shawn and Wallace Stegner and Wallace and, Stevens uh, and Wallace Stevens are the same guy, which, as writer noted Definitely recently, wrong. is inconceivable. <laughs> uh, so, do I get to go next? Did, did yeah, we determine that? All right. Go for it. So. I'm going to mention this person a little bit later when we talk about object lessons, but I want to bring your attention to um, a wonderful new book called The Constant Heart by Craig Nova. Um, and Craig Nova is one of these writers that is criminally underknown. Um, his new book, Constant Heart, um, has a lot to do with fathers and sons, as a lot of his books do. But also science. Um, there's a, a lot about um, Einstein and astronomy, um, and and the laws of nature and the rules of science um, as it relates to also you know basic human um, love between a father and a son. But he wrote what is one of my all-time favorite books, which is a novel called Cruisers, which is um, about a guy who a, a cop who is looking for um, uh, basically a serial killer 
but it's also tied up in this crazy relationship he has with this woman. And it's one of the most literary crime novels uh, I've ever read. And Craig Nova is always writes really poetically about dark and violent and sad things, um, which makes him, of course, you know, the, sort of like the anti-James Patterson. So people don't go oftentimes to a bookstore looking for something that's dark and sad and going to make them upset. His most famous book is a book called The Good Son, um, which came out, I think, about 15 years ago or so. Um, but he's he's won lots of awards. Um, he's uh, you know he's he's one of those guys that gets Guggenheim's and National Endowment for the Arts awards, but is like I said, criminally underread. But he also has this fantastic book about um, fishing and how fishing relates to the writing life. And I know it sounds a little esoteric, but uh, he, you can um, sounds very Hemingway-ish. It does. Uh, <laughs> it, it's not. It's not really Hemingway-ish, but it, you know it talks about patience and things like that. But it, it's. It, I'm a sucker for books about fishing for some reason. I, when I was a kid, every summer I used to go up to a lake in, uh, in eastern Washington, Loon Lake, and fish with my grandfather. So really? I have, yeah. And so I have this real romantic attachment to the wisdom of fishing. Um, and so the Craig Nova book um, about fishing also reminds me of a wonderful book by another writer that is criminally underread, and he's unfortunately passed away, a writer named Paul Quarrington, who... Um, was Canadian, and he wrote a book, uh, Fishing with the Old Guy, which was about fishing with his father um, and about life lessons learned. Um, but they're both, Paul Quarrington and Craig Nova, are both writers that people just don't, you know, seem to know as much about. And I, I keep... Ri- I didn't know who Craig Nova was until we read that story. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think he's one of those writers, and it's unfortunate, I mean, he must be in his 60s, um, that... He has sort of a cult following. I think more writers read him than readers. You know, writers that are readers, obviously. Um, And in a way, I'm sort of reminded of Daniel Woodrell, another fantastic writer who had sort of a cult following. And it wasn't until he got a movie made of one of his books, Winter's Bone, that he really became, you know, sort of part of the national conversation in in terms of books. You could buy his books at Costco, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you guys are looking for a writer that you've, um, you know, Want to feel like you discovered as well. Craig Nova is uh, is someone you guys should take a look at. I love Cruisers the most, um, but his new book, The Constant Heart, is really powerful and moving. And if you like books about fathers and sons um, and the power and the struggle between both of them, um, I think you'll like The Constant Heart. And that is, in fact, I think the first time I've done a bookshelf revisit in the last year where I actually talked about a book. Yeah, huh. yeah that sounds We're- great. Also. I didn't oh, know you fished great. as a kid. Yeah, yeah, me neither. You do not strike me as someone who would be able to kill something. Uh, oh, I could kill something. <laughs> I, I've got a lot of rage. I, I, I was going to say sit by a stream and just be patient for five hours. That part I couldn't. I can't imagine. All right. Well, my revisit is um, Goldbergian in that it's not about a book. Um, <laughs> but uh, I had a wonderful literary experience nonetheless um last night i saw glenn gary glenn ross on broadway with al pacino and uh the some the doctor from scrubs who is amazing do you guys know who i'm talking about patrick dempsey no, no is that no that's no. great anatomy. anatomy i've never um, watched scrubs i've never watched scrubs either listeners will know who i'm talking about the main doctor who is their spiritual guide um and uh another guy who is in it is from boardwalk empire so it was a very like tv and film actor centered production there's only seven men in the play and they're all tv people and it was was pacino amazing. playing the same part he did in the movie no. 
No. Really? Because, oh. yeah, he's like 40 years older. Or not that right. much older, but the character oh God, is much older. About. So he's he plays the oldest, most broken down, most Jack pathetic. Lemon oh, the part. Jack Lemon character. Oh, yes. yeah. wow. Did they have the Alec Baldwin speech? Or that's only in no. the okay, movie, No, okay, yes, that's right? what I wanted to talk about. Okay, so yeah. um, they... You know, I have only seen the movie. I've never seen it stage. And that yeah. scene is not in the always be closing, mm-hmm. setting up the Cadillac steak knives, you're fired, is not in the play at all. Instead, it's so well done. The, that scene is just completely removed. And the first half of the play is just three small scenes of people reacting to that event. The exact event definitely happened, but the play opens with, you know, them all freaking out because they think they're going to be fired. And it's so, it has a huge impact. If you didn't, if you hadn't seen the movie, it's very hard to, you know, remove that. But if you hadn't seen the movie, the emotional height is already so extreme right in the beginning. They're all so desperate um, because they have just been informed of this. And you can very easily piece it together. You know, the Cadillac is a huge MacGuffin of the play. They talk about it all the time. Like, where's my Cadillac? I want my Cadillac. Put me on the Cadillac board, et cetera, et cetera. So you can definitely piece it together. But it's a really interesting device having taken that scene out. And it's, it makes it, I think, actually a sadder and less fun piece of work. <laughs> well, uh, I- I don't think anyone's ever looked at Glengarry Glen Ross and said, well, that was a good time. Well, <laughs> yeah, but it was... I Just mean, a barrel of joy. <laughs> the reason I thought of it as a as a bookshelf revisit is just the the language and the speech is so... It is so well-written. It's so amazingly repetitive and descriptive. It's, you know, it's just everything you want in a play in terms of the writing. You know, the actors just get to have a good time with the language and Al Pacino was having the goddamn time of his life. Let me tell you. Does he do that weird thing that he's done for the last like 25 years where it seems like he's chewing gum all the time? (laughs) Like he's Um, like he's chewing his cheek or something. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, I didn't really notice that. At one I am a like, passionate defender of Al Pacino. Like, lo- I've gotten into so many arguments with people. Because, like, I, I got to do this fight with a friend who was like, you know, Al Pacino's the worst actor. He's so over the top nowadays. And I was like, I think he's brilliant. And I think that he's hysterical. And then he sent me clips from YouTube of, like, Pacino acting over the top. And in each case, I was like, nope, that's perfect. Because, like, you know, the scene the scene that everyone talks about is from Heat, right? I Where love like, that scene. She had a great ass. Or, what, you know, that. <laughs> Like, right. and, and and you watch it. It's the whole point of that scene is that he's supposed to be enticing this guy who's like you know stonewalling him, and he's supposed to go over the top to push this guy's buttons. And so it's it's him being a brilliant psychotic cop. It's it's great. Have you guys ever seen the the clips from the the well? Okay, so the movie Heat was originally a Michael Mann TV pilot, and so a lot of the scenes that he shot originally for the pilot. He just did with the same dialogue in the movie. So the great scene between De Niro and Pacino in the diner, uh, he shot you know beat for beat, line for line, with two really bad actors in the TV show, and it's <laughs> it's just a horrible scene in the TV show because they can't act the two guys. 
Um, you can find it on it's YouTube. It's a horrible scene anyway. Come it is on. a great Let's... scene. That, that, oh, first of all, that is the worst movie ever. Everyone loves oh. that movie. Watch it again. It's so bad. Oh, oh, this, oh it's so bad. Here is where we part ways, Ryder yeah. Strong. It, that yeah, movie come is on. awesome. No, the, 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 the breakout of the bank scene is okay, but it's 25 minutes of them like running around going, we got to get over here. <laughs> Yeah, we gotta get That's over here. That's how shit goes down. <laughs> yeah, but I don't need to watch it. It's <laughs> Michael Mann is the worst. I hate him so much. All of those movies, except for Collateral, I can't stand any of his oh, movies. Collateral's like, horrible. He dude, that's is the good. only one that has any story. Heat is just like Heat has a story, guys, and we're gonna no. Heat is so bad, dude. I'm sorry. Wow. It's so cheesy. That, uh, it's. Uh, that scene okay, we, between we're gonna Niro- watch it. Todd looks very upset. <laughs> They're never in the same shot. They they weren't acting with each other. They Except- didn't shoot them together. They had stand-ins. I think that's okay, an guys. apocryphal right. story. Wow. Well, anyway, Al Pacino. If, if you diss heat, you diss me. <laughs> great. <laughs> anyway, David Mamet. He's a great. He's a terrible movie. <laughs> David Mamet's a great playwright. Who's and lost his mind? Guy- also, by the way. Oh, yeah, well, whatever. Let's just stick with the play itself. It is a great piece. <laughs> this is what happens when you don't revisit a book, is you open up these tethers of things that I and Ryder are... I and Ryder. Name of my new essay collection, I and Ryder. Essays. <laughs> that, I, that I and Ryder are passionate I about. Fishing with I and Ryder. I and <laughs> any, any closing thoughts on Glengarry? Yeah, I just think it is. Oh God, we've uh, we've lost. I've lost it so much You've in my lost brain. The thread. Uh, yeah, see it, read it. It does. I don't think it matters how you experience it, the movie or the play, or just reading it, because it is really the language and the ideas behind it that I'm in love with. So those are my closing thoughts. And then I think everyone should watch Heat and uh, get back to us on whether or not it is one of the greatest crime movies of the 20th oh. century, or if you are like in writer's camp and are you know have had a brain injury. And don't like the, the movie. problem with that movie is it's a great idea and everybody remembers the idea of the movie but you actually watch it the acting is horrific the dialogue is terrible it's so on the nose and cheesy it's not good it's not a good movie it doesn't hold up we just remember the idea of this great bank robbing movie and like it's not no i, I actually no. remember the movie and not the idea and what really? I remember is that... Do you remember the dialogue from the scene between the two of them in the diner? Yes, and it's remarkable. Oh. And what I remember from <laughs> that movie specifically is watching it and thinking, well, fuck Ryder Strong. This is brilliant. <laughs> okay, well... I, I will watch it again and, and confirm my beliefs. And if it is bad, I will... Are you, did you love Public Enemies, too? Because that was a horrible No, Public movie. Enemies was horrible. And then uh, what about Miami Vice? I made it ten oh, minutes into each of those the, movies, and I was like, I actually have no idea what's happening Miami on Vice, camera. Miami Vice, I had absolutely <laughs> no Miami Vice, they're like, come on, let's get in the boats. Happening. And then they're like, riding on the boats in the first five minutes. And they're like, oh, you took the boats to go to this party to the, get on the roof to yeah. talk on your cell phones to a guy who, wait, you should be over but there. Like, what's the happening? At point where they were standing on the roof having a conversation <laughs> where I turned to Wendy and I was like, I have absolutely no idea what's happening in this movie. Right. Who are they and talking to? Why what are, are they, they doing at this roof? party? And why are they? At a, what's going on? The only movie that made less sense to me that I've seen all the way through was Speed Racer, and I was like, I, I, I remember the cartoon, and it wasn't like this. Well, on that note, um, next week we'll be revisiting other great '80s TV, TV shows and movies <laughs> that became. I will not be film. here. I will be busy seeing a play. A good play. <laughs>
Welcome back, everybody, to Literary Disco. Uh, today, we're going to talk about sort of an interesting book, something we haven't really done before, which is an anthology of short fiction. Um, but this book is unlike most anthologies in that it, it's attempting to also teach a little bit. Uh, so the book that we are going to look at is called Object Lessons. Um, the Paris Review presents the art of the short story, which is something I am fairly passionate about. Um, so I read most of this book totally nude. Um, the reason this no. is... By passionate, you mean sexually excited? Yeah, I mean, when I say passionate, what I mean is I'm actually going to knock one out during this episode. Uh, <laughs> so most anthologies are short fiction. There's a thousand of them you can go out there and find. But even just the ones that come out on a yearly basis, like the Best American Short Stories or the O. Henry Prize Stories or the Pushcart Prize, for instance, these are books you might see at your local bookstore if you still have a bookstore locally. Just present the story, and you just read it, and at the end you say, oh, what a sad life those no, people have. No, every led. single time you say, every time I finish a short story, my feeling is, hmm. hmm. Just like that. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. It, it's a sort of the same thing after the end of a reading. <laughs> at, at the end of a public reading, if, if something is powerful, you do the, oh. <laughs> you know, actually, Julia, uh. what you're saying, though, I mean, do you mean that... I mean, that is damning with faint praise to a certain extent, right? I mean, in a way, (laughs) in a way, are you saying that like short story as an art form doesn't have the power to move you? Because that's something that came up for me with this short story collection. So I think it's worth discussing. So let's get right into this. Well, hold on. Let me, let (laughs) me give you a quote here that, that plays into what we're talking about. Hold on. It's in the book. David means, um, so every story in the book is introduced by another writer talking about its importance and about its craft. Um, and so David Means, he talks about this a little bit in the preface to Why Don't You Dance by Raymond Carver, um, where he says, The critic Hugh Kenner once made the point that the short story, starting perhaps with Hemingway or perhaps Joyce, went from being mainly an entertainment convention to a form of high art. Hmm. At that point, the short story began to lean on poetics to demand as much of the reader as the writer. The old adage, everything matters, became deeply true when it came to reading a story, which I think lends itself to that sort of, oh, I need to appreciate this like a painting. Even if I don't understand it, I need to look at it and think, oh, this is what a wonderful thing. But, and, you know, I do that sometimes. I'm at a museum or something, and I... I feel like I'm the, I should stand with my hands behind my back, which is not something I do normally, and yeah. stare at something and, and try to be like, oh, you can see the fine-tuned brush strokes of the artist at play. And I don't know what the fuck I'm looking so at. So are you saying um, that, that short stories function in a similar way, that even when you don't understand it, you feel like it's your problem? I do sometimes, but and there's a story in here that I don't understand at all, and I presume it's actually the writer's problem. I think there are about five stories in here that I don't <laughs> understand at all. I think what what Means is saying about the Raymond Carver story is particularly true of some of the stories in this book because they are what I would view as basically Paris Review stories, right. Ooh, stories that, that you only found in the Paris Review. Well, um, so there's a lot of stories in here that end. Um, on just an epiphany, a realization. And that is sort of endemic of a lot of short stories that you saw in the Paris Review, but also in places like Story Magazine or that came out of the Iowa Writers' Workshop in the 80s that were influenced by the Carver School of Writing or the the, the Dirty Realists, um, folks like that, where it was less about the conclusion of the plot and more the conclusion of an emotional point of view. Um, And so the Paris Review published a lot of stories like that. 
Um, and so let's, I thought we'd take a look at some of the ones that we like the best or the ones that Well, hold on. I want to talk us. about stories in general for a second more. Okay, go ahead. I, I, I had a really interesting experience. I've, I've always liked short stories, but I usually don't like anthologies. And reading through this anthology start to finish, I... I kind of came down more negative than I almost ever have on short stories. I feel... Really? Yeah, I just... It's such a mixed bag. And what I realized was that a lot of these authors were picking short stories based on, like, like picking the Raymond Carver story or picking the Dennis Johnson story. And I think they were picking them based on the person's career and not on the individual story. That a lot of times they would say like so and so has the real talent of making stories, but but the actual individual story might be might be good. But I just I felt like people were talking more about approach to writing in general or an entire author's career, and it it very rarely felt like they were picking a short story that they thought was actually an entirely wonderful, awesome experience, start to finish on its own terms. Well, it also had to have appeared in the Paris Review. Exactly. So well, there, there like was you, that you, limited you, you, you challenge. Take, sure. Sure. Right. Yeah. They're but, curating. But what that spoke. From... But what that spoke to me was that as an art form, it can only give you so much. Um, that that even the best short story might result in what, like Julia said, like a hmm, like that was nice. But it's it's like a snack, you know, uh, rather than a, a whole meal. And I just realized that after going through this whole this whole book, which had so many misses for me. Like, there were lots of stories that I was just like, wow, do I not like this like. person's writing? I don't like what this person has to say about the world. Or something about it was just rubbed me the wrong way, and I'd quickly turn to the next one and hope that it was better. And even the ones that were really good, I would be like, yep, St- Stephen Milhauser, you really nailed it. That was awesome. <laughs> and then it's over. And then it's like, all right. And then I want to read another Stephen Milhauser story, and instead I got to read whatever crappy story followed that. And I just realized that, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I realized that short stories in general, I I would, ra- what here's what I like. I like when an author has a collection of their own short stories, and you can read an entire collection, and something mm-hmm. thematically or maybe actually literally connects all those stories together. That's what I like. Yes. I like when an author publishes a whole collection and I can read it start to finish and I get a sense and I like that author and I like what they have to say about the world or how they write and something brings it all together. Like Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son. When you co- read all those stories together, you get a great sense of a character and a bigger narrative. Well, this but, story by but, itself, but... he the intro for, for this story that is included in here... By the way, he ends up telling the entire story of Jesus' son. He even references the, yes. the, the title as if that in but, somehow informs but the hold short on, story. Hold on a minute. Hold on, hold on a minute. So what you're talking about, what you like about Jesus' son, is that it's a novel. Uh, you know, Jesus' son is a book of short stories, true, but they're interconnected short stories, which mean... They are a novel. Then maybe that's a bad um, you know, example. It, 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 but e- let's 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 I don't know. Pick pick an, a good author that has a collection of short stories. Rock Springs, your favorite. Like there's a worldview right. that comes through, or any yes. Raymond Carver collection, any good collection of short stories by a single author. I would rather read an entire collection by one author than something like this. I, I don't I don't think a book like this is meant to be read straight through. I, I think a book like this is meant to be re- read piecemeal over a long period of time. Because what happens, I think, particularly with something where it's all from the same place, all from the same magazine, irrespective of who the author is, there is going to be an editorial bias. Um, You know, that there is a type of story that for many years was the kind of story the Paris Review took because they had the same editor for many, many years. Um, So I think actually a book like this, and this book, you know, I, I think is probably 
pushed more towards, you know, creative writing students. You know, I don't know who's going to walk into Barnes & Noble and be like, you know what I want? I want a book called about the short story where famous writers teach me about other famous writers' short stories. You know, people want to go pick up a James Patterson novel and, you know, read it by the pool or whatever. Um, but I think as sort of yes, a, those and, are the two kinds of people. <laughs> well, now when you look at when you look at types of readers, when, I'm, I'm doing my writer strong invitation, making a broad generalization. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think this is also kind of instructive as to why some people find it pretentious, because I think there is a kind of pretension in the way we talk about short stories versus the way we talk about novels, because it's not about plot usually. In a short story, it's about um, you know epiphany and emotion and you know uh, subtext, which are all important parts of anything. But they often are the center point of a short story, whereas in a novel, they are just you know the the stuff that surrounds the story itself. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. So to you guys. can we talk about for a second the uh, you know the actual instructive those little intros? Yes. I'm gonna come out and say I did not really like the structure of this book. I, I think that in order to get any real impact from it, that you would have to read the intro, read the story and then read the intro again. I agree. And well, that's um, what I found myself doing. Yeah. Have you guys read, um, Francine Prose's book, reading like a writer? Yeah. Yes. Great book. Yeah. So that's a book that truly dissects and instructs. And these introductions just seem like random. I, I imagined every writer typing them up on an email, you know, yes. at four in the afternoon. <laughs> yes. Well, they were hit or miss. There were some that were really good. Um, I, yeah. For instance, um, I really loved um, the introduction to Bangkok that Dave Eggers gives. I thought that was fantastic. I was just going to say, because, that, was yes, key, that is yeah. a good one. He, it yeah. was yeah. the best. Yeah, it was specific. Yeah. Didn't give away the whole story, but explained why he liked it, why it was a good instruction. But then you look at like somebody who I actually do like, Jonathan Lethem. His introduction was horrible. I read it and I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, just all over the place, doesn't say anything interesting. It's sort of self-congratulatory and like he creates yeah. his own new genre. He calls a crumbling mm-hmm. tenement grotesque. I'm like, what? And then he goes in <laughs> and then the story he picked is so bad. <laughs> I think the I think the intros would have been much better if they happened after the stories. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you you know, and and it's just that once you read the intro, nothing in the story is surprising a lot of times, yeah, yeah. which which sort of sullies it. But let's talk about this story, Bangkok, by James yes. Salter. It's a really weird story. It's so good. <laughs> that, that's great literary criticism for you, there, folks. I, I love <laughs> it. Sounds it. like sounds like my undergraduates. I, it was weird. I wasn't sure. I, I didn't. Who is I was talking? Really, who is talking I didn't, when? I didn't understand like who was there and why. Like they, I just didn't. I don't know. Uh, Bangkok is is a is a great story because it's it's dealing with both the past and the present and the future at once. So there's a man who owns an antiquarian bookstore who's sitting there in his bookstore. And a woman from his past walks in, and they have this very bizarre conversation where you learn about his, you know, sort of twisted sexual past with this woman. And he's now married and has children. And she comes in and she basically invites him to run away with her and another woman and go to Bangkok. And it's just this very subtextual, fraught story that also asks questions about what it means to be happy and what it means to be satisfied. Our favorite topic here. Yeah, the story's maybe 2,000 words. It's really short. Um, but there's a, there's a wonderful moment, a surprising moment, where you've realized that the owner of this antiquarian bookstore likes to tie up women. 
Um, yeah, and yeah. it comes out of absolute nowhere. Yeah, um, I said, do you still like to tie their hands? You used to like it. It's always exciting to find out if they'll let you do it or not. I mean, part yes. of the reason that I really like this story is that is the juxtaposition between this woman's aggression. I mean, everything she says is so aggressive. It is wonderfully written and very real to me, but that she's coming into his environment, like the setting without any description of setting, the setting was so clear Mm -hmm. in my mind. And, you know, that balance between her, you know, her extreme personality and his, uh, you know, old book utopia that he'd created for himself. I just really love that because it didn't put her in as powerful of a position as it seems like she is from right. her dialogue. It's really powerful. What about um, what about stories like Old Birds by Bernard Cooper? Um, which, and this is oftentimes the argument about short stories, which is that people don't get the endings. That they don't wrap up the story in a tight little bow. So in Old Birds, the, the narrator gets a phone call from his father. He's calling him from a payphone on a street, and uh, he is lost, basically. And he's walking around with a jar of peanut butter that he wants to get opened. And the, it's a father and a son having a conversation, and he learns sort of the, the meat of their entire life and the, the tumult between them and their relationships. And I've said tumult too many times. Um, but it doesn't end with the narrator finding his father. It ends with him thinking of a building he's making, which is a very odd but oddly satisfying ending to this story. What, what did you guys make of that? And, and is that the sort of thing that you like or that you don't Here's like? Here's the thing. I actually enjoyed that story. I think it's good. I don't like this tendency in short stories. I think that even though that story to me was, was fine and, and I liked it, um, I think that unfortunately it falls into that, that Raymond Carver wannabe category that I feel like so much of literary fiction has suffered through for the last 40 years. And mm-hmm. I like it when people break out of that. I like, you know, the story I want to talk about is a Stephen Milhauser story. Like, I want to, I, I, I just think that we're moving on literary-wise and that so often, especially having been through a writing program where people are turning in stories that they think are very profound where nothing happens or no, there's no plotting, there's no satisfying ending. I just think that's really hard to pull off, you know? And it's like, it's, it's, you know, there's a couple references that people make in this book to James Joyce Dubliners, and I think Joyce pulled it off. Like, he has stories where it's just an epiphany, where not much happens, but that's because Joyce is, you know, the one-in-a-million kind of writer. I think Bernard Cooper in this story totally pulled it off. I actually enjoyed the story. But that tendency, which I guess I didn't realize because I never have read the Paris Review, but what you're talking about is this sort of classic Paris Review story. That's mm-hmm. exactly the kind of story I don't like. The dangling ending, <laughs> just the, the dangling nothing ending. happening story, just the the the, the like you know, uh, there's somewhat of a conflict between a couple of characters, but no one's ever actually going to come out and say what the conflict is, and then it sort of meanders there on the page, and then it just ends with like one character having a realization about something that has nothing to do with what you've been reading. Blah. Like I just no, I don't care. Most of the time, I I feel like that's what scares most people away from short stories is that they're told mm-hmm. to read this kind that kind of crap and they read it and then they're bored and they're like why don't I like short stories and it's uh, like well this is why it's you know it's like it's like giving people I, really wait I'm gonna are, I mean I, I hear what you're saying but I I mean of the stories that I read in here most of them had a lot of action actually more than I was expecting of people running away or people getting in car crashes or. You know, yeah, because they pick them out of the crap. 
I mean, think <laughs> okay. about like yeah. I can't read I can't read stories in the New Yorker. I hate everything in the New Yorker unless it's an author I recognize, like George Saunders or somebody who I know actually writes stories. I'll read it. Otherwise, I don't read stuff in the New Yorker because it's crap. Like most mainstream literary fiction <laughs> hold, hold on. has been how do, so. How mediocre. do you know it's crap if you're not reading? Because it. I've tried so often. <laughs> To, like, start a story but, in The New Yorker, and I've just been like, ugh. I am, like, wandering through the molasses of literary fiction that goes nowhere. Every story... There was a great short story in The New Yorker not long ago about some pickpockets in Spain that was awesome. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the sort of... I don't read the short stories in The New Yorker because they're terrible. It, I mean, that's just reductive. You know? <laughs> you don't know if they're terrible unless you're reading them. No, but them. what I'm saying is that the ten... I, I lost interest in reading stories in The New Yorker because the tendency for mainstream literary fiction, the Paris Review, The New Yorker, is to pick that sort of Raymond Carver-esque rip-off story. That, that's not true. Okay. That's not Well, true. maybe it's not true anymore, the, but that's the tendency that I've always well, no, seen, the, and that's why Yorker, I tend to just avoid reading short stories in literary magazines. The New Yorker is going to always hedge toward, uh, or tends to hedge more towards what would be considered more maximal stories, like Alice Munro, um, and, uh, you know, folks like that who are telling, you know, fairly thorough, in-depth stories versus the minimalists like Carver. Now, to be clear, Carver himself was not even Carver-esque. He was turned into that by Gordon Lish. When you read the stuff that Lish didn't edit, it's, you know, it's far more plot-driven, and there's, you know, there's, there's more endings to things than, than just sort of the ellipses of a short story. So, you know, what, you know, what a lot of writers are reacting to with Carver is not even who Carver was. You know, it's what Carver was turned into. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think... This story, you know, the, the, the story by Bernard Cooper, it's an old story, too. You know, it came out 13 years ago. Um, and I think people were still, a lot of people were still writing in that vein because that's what they'd been taught through. You know, they, the, the writers who are, you know, in their 50s now and late 40s, they, their textbooks were Raymond Carver and Joy Williams and Richard Ford and uh, Tobias Wolf and all those folks that were, you know, brought up in that, you know, workshop period in the 70s and early 80s um that's who their textbooks were so that's you know it makes sense a lot of them are going to write like their textbooks or that they're going to be somewhat imitative that i mean all writers do that god knows i did yeah you write Uh, as you read right exactly Uh, but i think there's a shift i think there's a shift from that now yeah, I think so too, and I'm glad. Like, I want to shift, you know, because I find that I I think that this has turned off a lot of people to the art of the short story because I think a lot of it is pretentious and self-involved, and I think it's not it's not good. I mean, I just you know, and and you know, I I think that like Rock Springs is really good, but you know, I think that how many books were published that were trying to be Rock Springs after that book? You know, a lot of them, and a lot mm-hmm. of them were not good. And you know, how many of those stories popped up in magazines and or, you know, did you have to read in workshop? That's that's the part that, you know, has turned me off to a lot of this style. Well, and, you know, but so here's the thing is that then there's writers like, um, for instance, Amy Bender. So Amy Bender's first collection of short stories, The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, came out in 2000, I think it was, 2001, somewhere in there. And, you know, she was one of the first American surrealists to really do fable-like stories and to, and, and to not be concerned about things being in a fantastic world. And so now when you are reading, and I'm, I'm reading right now for a, a contest I'm judging, um, That's, but yeah. in workshops or, or things like that, a lot of the stories you can say, oh, okay, this person's not reading Amy Bender because everything's happening on the head of a pin 
or all the characters are fingerling potatoes or whatever. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> Not hmm, but mm-mm. <laughs> so it's. It, I mean, it's always going to be that cycle, and it's true for for all art. I mean, how many you know how many films after The Godfather were trying to be The Godfather? You know, how many songs after? Um, you know, I want to hold your hand or let it be, <laughs> you know, we're trying to be Beatles songs. I think in this book, there are some stuff, some stories that completely change the paradigm that aren't normal. And not that I loved all of them, but, you know, I, I think not all of them have that s- similarity, but still, I feel like they're all Paris review stories, which is, you know, hard to quantify, except that if, if there's a, there's an intellectualism to them that makes them feel like high art versus something you could read and be like, oh, that was fun. Like, there's not a lot of fun stories in here. Yeah, there was n- uh, very little humor. So much of it comes down to crap. Because you can write a short story about fingerling potatoes that are alive. You can write a short story about, you know, <laughs> recording a podcast. Mm. But at what point does it become <laughs> interesting or engaging is really up to the writer to make it so, you know, or to fail. Right. And... You know, that's why a book like this is such well, a mixed bag. I think that the emotional impact of these can be so specific that that's right. kind of what, that's what the, hmm, reaction is for me. It's just, <laughs> it's so, it it nails, a, to me, a good short story nails you in such a specific place that, you know, there's no a huge sweep of emotions. There's just one very extreme emotion, like a pinprick that mm-hmm. hurts if it's good mm-hmm. does, does that make sense to yeah. you guys yeah. I, I absolutely agree i mean that's what that's what the aim is just to feel make someone feel something right. but like a song or a poem i mean it is a short form so you're right. not going to get this and i think the the short story is more closely related to the poem than it is to the novel i mean yeah. a short story is 15 or 20 pages the novel could be 500 yeah. so you want that that aha moment for the reader but i think the best short stories stay with you the same way a great novel does. Uh, you, you brought up the Stephen Milhauser story, though, right? Do yeah, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I love it. I mean, it falls into the category of the sort of magical realist uh, stuff like Amy Bender that you were talking about. Uh, I mean, he's been writing a lot longer than Amy Bender. But it's called Flying Carpets, and it's this weird nostalgia story about being a teenager and in this alternate world, I guess, where people can actually buy flying carpets so it's about this teenager whose dad shows up with the flying carpet for him and in a way it 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 parallels most nostalgia stories about i don't know getting a a motorcycle or your first bicycle or something like that Mm -hmm. and it becomes this great short story about how he would take his flying carpet out at night and go on these flying carpet rides that his parents didn't know about over the roofs and see how high he would go. And it becomes the perfect short story. It's so beautifully written and, and, and evocative, and you get the sense of, of color and experience of flying. But also, thematically, it relates to being a teenager and everything that you experience when you, you know, sneak out in the middle of the night or have your first sexual experience or take a motorcycle ride or whatever it is that is that parallel to the adolescent moment is captured perfectly by this flying carpet. And so on one level, on it works on this magical level of just fun, exciting, well-described flying experiences, but then it works on this other level of just perfectly capturing being a teenager um, and mm-hmm. and reflecting on being a teenager once you're an adult. You know, the, the strange thing about this story, and um, I'd read it before, is that when I think about the story, I think of it being golden. And, like, there's a glow to the story itself. It's been it's been photographed in Instagram? Yeah, and it, it's a... 
it's a strange thing. So, Julia, you wanted to talk about the first story in the collection? Yeah, I, well, I, spoiler alert, I know you didn't like it, and I really liked it, so that is worth a minute. Um, so, it's this Joy Williams story called Dimmer, and it's pretty long, and I have a personal bias here in that I really enjoy short stories that just sweep over a long period of time with that remove, um, you know, like, train dreams when we read it but i i just really love that style of storytelling and the specific reason that i love this is that the language was so weird like everything was described in a very strange way here i ended up starring a lot of things which is an automatic i like this uh, (laughs) book or i like this story um so for example he's describing or she's describing um someone cowboys who have tattoos and Mm -hmm. so there's this little paragraph it just says on their dark arms they had tattoos legends of roses and tigers puce needle diggings stain of capillaries the muscled petals that women love to touch and just the whole story is made up of these odd details that i really oh here's another one uh a uh a stewardess is trying to buckle his seatbelt, and he's never been on a plane before so he doesn't really you know He's uncomfortable in the scenario, the main character. His lap seemed as vulnerable as a child's winter mitten. Untidy soiled surge as the fingers advanced long and blue near the nails, four like a fork with a thumb the spoon, her mouth full of sensen, skipping a little bit. He was full of orifices, like a pinball machine. They could groove or notch or tag him anywhere. They had ways. Mm. But what the hell Mm. is the story about? (laughs) What's it about? Yeah, I never, I couldn't well, finish it. I have to say, I couldn't finish okay. it. I was so exhausted by the language. And I love, like, when I hear a line like that, I go, yes, like, there's some great lines. Yeah. But I could not get through the denseness of this language. I was like, this, yeah. I don't care about anybody. I don't care about anything. I don't know what the hell's happening. And so I, you know, my suggestion coming on today to Literary Disco was, you people should read this book, but skip around and definitely skip the first story. Yes. Because if you open this book and read that first story, unless you're willing to climb Mount Everest, you know, it's like <laughs> you have to get through that story. And I didn't. I skipped ahead. If you do get through the whole story, then the theme and point of the story comes out very clearly. And it's, you know, it's a pretty common theme. It's that his mother has died at the beginning of the story and he just sees and feels and fears other people's deaths around him so you know he even changed you know he flies from australia to la and he feels like he's in this golden land and then he suddenly realizes that you know anyone could die at any time and it's Mm. but you do have to read the whole story to really feel the impact of that and it's it is weird can i recommend uh one of the story we don't need to necessarily talk about it but i'm a huge fan of craig nova and if you want an introduction to craig nova another drunk gambler um, is a great short story of his. I don't know if you guys both read it, but I, I absolutely loved it. Can you describe it And uh, it's, uh, it's the story of a horse that uh, dies on a track. Oh, that was a great one. Shot in the head. Yeah, great. I love yeah. that one. <laughs> um, but Craig Nova always takes weird points of view, and this short story is, is told from the point of view of having been told this story, and then he retells it, which is really cool. But he wrote... A great book called Cruisers that um, is one of my favorite books in the last 15 years. And I'm reading another book of his right now that I'll probably talk about on our, on our next episode. Um, but that, that was my personal favorite that we haven't talked about. Do you guys have ones 
that you yeah I, I would like to, to mention the palace thief by ethan kane and it's maybe not surprisingly considering how much i've talked crap about the short story it's the longest story in here and uh <laughs> i loved it i thought mm-hmm. in light of a public figure like mitt romney it is a perfect story <laughs> to read right yes. now um because it's really about it's a it's I don't need to go into much more than that, but if you're fascinated by how somebody like Mitt Romney or, you know, any sort of public figure that um, builds a narrative of themselves starting at a very early age and then goes into politics, how that happens, uh, it's just an incredible story and it's really subtle and well told and I love the narrator. I, I, I think it's one of my favorite short stories ever, actually. Like, I just think it has so many layers to it that you can just keep peeling apart. Um, and maybe it's more like a novel. It's actually long enough to almost be a novella. It's great. Well, thank you guys for uh, sitting down discussing the art of the short story. I disagree with everything you've said, Ryder, yeah. uh, primarily today. And uh, <laughs> we are no longer friends. Okay. I, I hope it doesn't make the podcast awkward. Um, and well, again, this is... leaving <laughs> Ryder now with no friends or family. Because yeah, of our oh, that's true. His family uh, left him after the Pillars of the Earth. <laughs> so anyway, if you're interested in this book, it's Object Lessons. Uh, the Paris Review presents the art of the short story. It is out now, available in bookstores and e-reading devices across the world. And, and uh, this will we'll be, see you next this time. This will become like the major textbook for so many writing classes, I bet. Yes, it will. It's, it's going to be like a yeah. one-stop shop for a lot of teachers. So if you're interested in writing... You might as well buy your copy now. Well, I mean, you could also get Pillars of the Earth. That's you, true. If you're really into the, if you're into nipple fiction, you might want to get Pillars <laughs> oh, of the Earth God. instead. Uh, <laughs> nipple pinching. Yes, it all comes together. <laughs> it all comes down to nipple pinching. I you, think. And I, you know what I have to say about that, Todd? What's that? Hmm. 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 Ow. <laughs> 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 all right. We'll see you next time, everybody. And that's it for this edition of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss John Barent's nonfiction book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter at literary disco. Thanks for listening.